For today, we're finishing out the Old Testament, taking us eight and a half years, uh, but Malachi rounds out the 12 minor prophets. A little background here before we read and, and dig out this book together. He's the last of the minor prophets. The 12 final books of the Old Testament are minor prophets because these are prophets that God sent to the people, but their messages were much shorter. That's why they're called minor prophets. Uh, Malachi's name is pronounced in Hebrew, Malachi. Malachi means my messenger, and there's nothing we know about his life. He doesn't give us any insight about his heritage or anything about his background, and we don't have anything else in the rest of the Bible to, to inform us about his background. So, that, so we know nothing really about this prophet. He ministered around 400 B.C., and he ministered to the people of Judah in Jerusalem after they had come back from their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And... Malachi is not just the last of the minor prophets, he's, he's the last of the prophets until the New Testament. And he follows, chronologically in your Bibles, he follows the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give you details about when the exiles returned to their homeland, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, and then Malachi comes about a hundred years, on average, about a hundred years after the Jews had been back in the homeland. So, so check this out. It's important to understand the temple has now been rebuilt, done. Haggai came, encouraged them to build the temple. Temple's been rebuilt. Haggai's gone. Nehemiah came, encouraged the people to build up the city walls around Jerusalem. They've done that. Nehemiah's gone. And now about a hundred years have passed And here comes Malachi, and he is sent by God uh, to challenge them. Because when a hundred years has passed and your work is done, the temple's built, the walls have been rebuilt, a hundred years have passed, a whole other generation has come and gone. And the tendency is for things that are important to get forgotten. In a hundred years' time, if you aren't intentional about passing down to the next generation the values and the principles and in this context, the commands of God, you end up having another generation that has raised up, been raised up without shared common values and principles and truths. And so Malachi is being sent to the people because they've grown spiritually apathetic and morally lazy. It's what happens. You know, human nature, human tendency is you get complacent, you get lazy because you get comfortable. And after the temple's been rebuilt, the walls of the city have been rebuilt, the people are now sitting back, a whole other generation has come and gone, and people don't share the same common values and principles that they once did. So God sends Malachi to the people to challenge them about their spiritual apathy and their moral laziness. And so uh, they're, they're, they're unconcerned about matters that should matter. And so God is going to speak now to uh, the people here through the prophet Malachi. It's interesting that there are a total of 55 verses uh, in the book of Malachi. When you you add up all the verses, 55 verses in Malachi, 47 out of the 55 verses are first person spoken by the Lord. So Malachi writes very little commentary, almost zero. Uh, He is speaking here firsthand, uh, the Lord just speaking uh, through him and As a result of their spiritual apathy and their moral laziness, God's going to call them out on a few things. And every time he does, the people ask questions. Now, they don't ask questions because they want to learn. Like, tell us more, Lord. What does this mean? They ask questions every time God calls them out on something 
as basically sarcastic denials of what he's saying. So it, it's, you'll see it as, as I walk you through it. Look here in your Bibles, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. They're going to ask eight questions in response to what God says. And every time these are sarcastic denials. Chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? <laughs> Further down, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? Go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Go further down to verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Go to chapter 3. Verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? One more, still there in chapter 3, look at verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Eight questions. I'll summarize them on the wall here. They ask him, in what way have you loved us? In what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? For what reason do you not receive our offering? In what way have we wearied you? In what way shall we return to you? In what way have we robbed you? What have we spoken against you? And these are all sarcastic denials of what God is saying to them. And so God's going to address them in these ways. And he's going to point out, here's what's going on. You become spiritually apathetic. You become morally lazy about some things. And he's going to challenge them. And when he challenges them, he basically is going to take all of these eight questions. And you can categorize them into three main categories. Here they are. Ministry, marriage, and money. When you look at what he addresses in their lives, the things that they've become apathetic about, unconcerned about, They can fall in these categories, ministry, marriage, and money. We'll talk about these things this morning, but let's first pray, and then we'll we'll dig out these verses together. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we're thankful that you've given us your word, and not just ancient words, Lord, but timeless truth. And as we consider what you had to say to them about ministry and marriage and money, we want to take to heart what you said to them, because, Lord, this applies to us as much as it does to them. And so we pray that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us today, and that we would be open to the work of your Holy Spirit to challenge us about some of these things. Help us, Lord, to be honest and to be open in our heart towards you as we consider what you would have to say to us by your Spirit through the pages of your Word today. So help us, Lord, to hear and to do what you tell us. We love you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 
I can't help but, you know, and as I read through these questions, I, I, you know, I use tone to suggest what's going on here. They were, they were being childish. I can't help but read these questions and think how childish of them to be asking these questions like this. Sarcastic denials of, of God. Very childish of them. And it reminds me of the story about this lady who was about to give birth to twins. And they knew in advance it was going to be a boy and a girl. And uh, she and her husband couldn't figure out what to name the babies. And so they just, they just said, you know, we don't know what to name them. So she, the, the woman who was ready to give birth, turns to her brother and, and, and says, why don't you pick out names? We don't care. Just pick out names. And so she goes in for delivery. And after the C-section is over, her brother comes to visit her in her room, and as she's recovering, she says, well, I'm just curious now, what names did you pick? What name did you pick for the girl? He said, I picked the name Denise. She says, that's a beautiful name. I love that. Good job, bro. And he says, thanks, sis. And then she says, now, what did you name the boy? And with this childish grin on his face, he said, I named him (laughs) Denephew. You'll get it on the way home. Denise, Denephew, it was her brother. Anyway, all right. Childish, I know, childish. But anyhow, we're going to talk about these three categories. The first one is ministry. And when we talk about ministry, what we're talking about, God calls them out on the fact that they have been neglecting their ministry to the Lord. Now, a lot of times when we talk about ministry, we think that ministry is something that clergy do, something like I'm doing right now, or something that missionaries do on the mission field. And that is ministry, but that's not all that ministry means. First of all, we all have ministry. Every single one of us have ministry. And the second thing that is important to realize is that ministry happens both horizontally and vertically. It happens horizontally when we minister to one another and serve one another and love one another in the name of Jesus. That's ministry that happens horizontally. But ministry also can happen vertically in terms of how we love the Lord and how we serve the Lord and how we honor the Lord, how we worship the Lord. That's ministry that happens vertically. That's what God is calling out here among the people. They have lost their vertical ministry. They have been careless and neglectful concerning their devotion to God. And one of the things that God points out to illustrate this is here in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. What they are doing is that they're bringing defective animals to the temple to sacrifice. Now, this was back in the day when animals were still sacrificed, pointing towards the cross. Jesus would eventually die for the sins of the world. He would be the ultimate and final lamb to take away the sins of the world. But up until Jesus Christ was revealed, God made a gracious provision in the Old Testament that if you would sacrifice an animal on behalf of your family, on behalf of your life, an innocent animal on behalf of sinful lives, one animal at least for a family of ten, Uh, then I will receive you temporarily as righteous by faith, looking toward the cross, animal sacrifice, something now that's been replaced since Jesus died on the cross. But in that day, they were to bring their animal, their lamb to the sacrifice as an atonement for their sins, a temporary atonement. And what they were doing, God says, is you're bringing me all the blind lambs that you have, all the lame lambs, all the sick lambs. Here in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he says, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Verse 8, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? 
He says, offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, God says, you bring it to me, animals that you wouldn't even give to your governor. You'd be embarrassed to show up at the governor's mansion and say, here, I brought you these lambs. Enjoy. Because what you're bringing me are these, they're, they're blind and they're lame. They're sickly. You know, and they, God's like, that's what you're bringing me. He's like, this is what you're bringing me. All your leftover garbage from the flock. You're just like cleaning out the flock and deciding instead of bringing me the cream of the crop, you're going to bring me the worst of the flock. And this is what they were doing. Now, it reminds me in a similar way. Years ago, years ago, we used to have once in a while canned food drives to help restock the pantry of of local. uh, You know where I'm going with this? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, to help out the homeless here in the area. And so, you know, we'd have canned food drives and all of a sudden we'd see what people would bring in. Now, this is years ago, so I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just saying you're, people would bring in like, like they'd go through their pantry and they're like, okay, what can we give the homeless that we don't want anymore? Spam. And they pull spam off the shelf. Why they even bought it to begin with, I have no idea. And then they'd bring in like cream of mushroom soup that was expired or like rancid peanut butter. And then like they'd load it up, take it to the church and think they've done God and the homeless a, a gift. Like they, they haven't done anybody a favor. They brought their leftover stuff. They brought their... You know, all of this stuff and thinking that somehow the homeless won't won't mind. Wait, 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 wait. Remember how Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When, when, When we don't give God our best, the best of our abilities, the best of our time, the best of our talents, the best of our resources, we are in effect offering him our leftover stuff. And God says about them, you've grown complacent and apathetic towards me. You're not offering me the best of what I've given you. Well, another way that they neglected ministry to God was in the way that they spoke of him. Instead of praising him with their words, they were complaining about him with their words. Still there in chapter 1, look at verse 13. He says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, he calls him out, he says, I've overheard you saying it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. And so their complaint against God is that God is too harsh and his commandments are too hard. God, you're too harsh. Your commandments are too hard. Here we are. We've been trying to keep your ordinances. We've been, you know, trying to honor you and obey you. And, 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 and here the whole while, people who don't even love you, wicked people are getting by scot-free. This isn't fair. Why should we even obey your ordinances when we watch other people who don't even love you seem to get away with stuff? And so why are we even obeying you anymore? And so, so they dishonor God with their words instead of praising him and honoring him. They say about him that he's harsh and his commandments are hard. And it's important for us to take this to heart. Because we can sometimes do the same thing. Can I just say to you that when you look at what wicked people seem to get away with, this is what we we think when we evaluate the world and we look at how we try to honor God and then we look at other people who have no intention of honoring God and we're like, how come things seem to be going so well for them and they seem to get away with stuff? Listen, 
people who live for this world may have short-term gains, but they will experience long-term consequences. In contrast, Christians who live for the Lord may experience sometimes short-term consequences, but we will be rewarded with long-term gains. This is what Paul meant in Romans 8.18 when he said, I consider that my present sufferings, some of our short-term consequences, are not worth comparing to the glories that await me in Christ Jesus, the long-term gains. If you keep your eyes focused on just the short-term, you will always be disappointed. But if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and you persevere in life, knowing that your ultimate reward is kept in heaven for you for all eternity, then you will always be content no matter what the circumstances. You lose sight of eternity, you will be depressed looking at the short term. So don't compare your life to the people who don't want to live for the Lord, because they might experience short-term gains, but ultimately they will experience long-term consequences. We, on the other hand, may experience short-term consequences, but long-term gains. Keep your perspective right. Make sure you're looking at the ultimate prize. The second category that he has issue with uh, concerning their lives is marriage. And it's not marriage itself. It's the fact that they don't want to be married, that they are engaging in casual, frivolous divorces, and God calls them out on the fact that they have just become apathetic about the sacredness of the bond of marriage. That they are not living in a way that honors God in terms of marriage. They are dishonoring God because they are quick to divorce. Now, in talking about this subject... I obviously want to exercise grace and tenderness uh, because divorce is not only something that has affected almost all of us, either directly or indirectly, but I also want to talk about this tenderly because, honestly, divorce is like a death. And I want to speak tenderly to those who have gone through a divorce as much as I would speak tenderly to someone who has experienced a death in the family. It's just that difficult. It's, it's that hard. And, and yet, at the same time, it, it's important for me to point out, as Malachi says it here, speaking uh, on behalf of the Lord, that it is one issue, divorce, about which God says he hates. I mean, that's the word that is used here. He hates. Now, I'm going to point it out to you, but before I say further, let me just also add Divorce is not the unpardonable sin, as some people want to make it out to be. Um, But it is something that grieves God, and we need to understand why. And we need to take to heart these things because, again, when people read the Bible and they say, well, it's a bunch of old stories many centuries ago, true, but it is timeless truth. And here we are living in a day when there's no-fault divorce, a very casual approach to marriage and the sacredness of it. And we need to kind of recalibrate and we need to make sure as Christians that we're honoring God in this area of marriage. Because unfortunately, the divorce rate in the church is no better than the divorce rate outside the church. And something's wrong with that. Because of all people, we as Christians should learn what does it mean to stay committed in marriage? What does it mean to honor God? What does it mean to keep our oath even when it hurts? And so marriage is something that God has instituted 
and he wants us to honor marriage and honoring God, we honor him in the process. And when we go through divorces without biblical grounds, I'll qualify that in a minute, we dishonor God. And so it's important for us ourselves to look at this and say, okay, what is God saying to us? Now, if you look here in your Bibles at chapter two, look at verses 14 to 16. Verse two, chapter two, verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? And he says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Now, some of your Bibles say you have broken faith. Some of your translations. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Notice that covenant. This is not just a commitment. This is a covenant. This is a sacred bond that God has implemented that we need to understand before God is a covenant. Verse 15, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit, which is what the Bible says in Genesis chapter two, a father shall leave his, uh, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It is from the Hebrew word devak. Devak is the root word for glue in Hebrew. We are to be glued together as husband and wife. That's God's intent. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously. Let none break faith with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, that you do not Break faith. Now, this last part about covering your garment with violence. In, in, in those days, a marriage uh, would end with the husband taking his garment, his cloak, and wrapping it around his wife, his new bride. And it was symbolic of, I am covering you now with my love, my commitment, my devotion. God is saying when we divorce without biblical grounds, we are doing the opposite. And instead of covering her with love and companionship and protection and devotion, we are now basically uncovering her and it's a violent thing. And so God puts high value on marriage because this is something that he has implemented. Now, why is it that God hates divorce? And the second question is, are there some grounds uh, on which divorce might be permissible? So let me answer the first question first. Why does God hate divorce? God hates divorce because marriage was intended by God to be a display of God's love and grace and faithfulness toward us. So marriage is to express God's love, his grace, and his faithfulness towards us. And when we come into a marital union, ideally, we are supposed to be mirroring that to our spouse. We are to be showing the same love and grace and faithfulness that God has shown us to our husband or to our wife. It, it, is, it is to be a parallel of the kind of love and grace and faithfulness God has for us that in a marital union we show for our spouse. Now, throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God compares his relationship, Old Testament to Israel, New Testament Christ to the church, as like unto a marriage. In fact, there's marital language used throughout Old Testament and New. I'll give you a few examples. This is Isaiah 54, verse 5. God says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. In Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. 
And by the way, when the Jewish people forsook the Lord and followed after idols, God said, in effect, using same, the same marital language, you were committing adultery because you have left me. Instead of loving me, you've loved other gods. You've left me for another lover. And so in Jeremiah 3.14, God says, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. He calls them back out of their adultery. He says, come back to me. I love you. I'm your husband. In a similar way, in the New Testament, Paul would write in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting out of Genesis chapter 2. And then he adds, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, in the New Testament, Christ presents as the groom, and we are the bride, and he's coming again for us to take us home to be with him forever. In fact, when, his, when he comes again, his second coming, in Revelation 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride, us, we have made ourselves ready. So there's this marital language, because God is communicating his love, grace, and faithfulness to us, and he wants us to demonstrate that in a marriage. And therefore, when we likewise demonstrate love, grace, and faithfulness to our spouse, we are representing God. But to the contrary, when we break faith with a spouse, without biblical grounds, we are misrepresenting God's character and distorting the image of God's love, grace, and faithfulness. And unfortunately... Because we live in such a casual, no-fault divorce system now these days in our country, divorce has been made easy, accessible, and appealing to people who no longer want to be committed. And often their answer simply is, not always, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but often the answer simply is, I'm just not happy. Now let me tell you something as Christians, why that is unacceptable as an answer in marriage. Because the ultimate goal in marriage is not personal happiness. It is personal holiness. If you don't get that, you will never be happy in your marriage. Because if you think that happiness is what leads, it doesn't. Holiness is what leads. Happiness will follow holiness, but holiness will never follow happiness. If you are first right with God and you do all that is necessary for you to be right with God, irrespective of what your spouse might do, if your goal is personal holiness before God, then you will do what is right in that marriage, even if your spouse necessarily may not. Because to be God-honoring means we obey God, we represent God properly in the marriage, we stay committed as God stays committed to us, and we keep our oath even when it hurts, Psalm 15, verse 4. Because that's the way God is with us. Aren't you glad... That God does not treat us the way sometimes we treat each other in a marriage. He stays committed. He loves us with an everlasting love. He woos us back when we stray. He is loving and gracious and faithful to us. But I hear all the time. Well, you don't understand, Pastor Gary. We have irreconcilable differences. Can I just tell you, every marriage has irreconcilable differences. What does that mean? Every single marriage has irreconcilable differences. When Terry and I got married, let me tell you something. After the goo goo gaga phase, like, oh, goo goo gaga, oh, let me feed you. You feed me. Oh, we suddenly realized how different we were. 
we married our complete opposites. How many of you, go ahead, it's liberating. Just raise your hand. How many of you married your complete opposite? Praise God. Now, let me tell you why that's a good thing. At first, you're like, I can't believe. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you think like that? Why do you want to do that? Why do you want... At first, when you realize that you guys are different, it becomes competitive, doesn't it? It becomes competitive. And it becomes judgmental. I can't believe. Why do you... Why do you put the toilet paper over instead of under? Why do you do that? Who taught you that? Why do you just squeeze the toothpaste like that? Roll it up from the bottom. All those little quirky differences that suddenly get exposed and you're thinking, I, I, I feel like I have married the spawn of Satan. And you, don't, and, you don't even, and you don't even know what in the world just happened from the Goo Goo Gaga stage to the please. There's a demon in, in the house somewhere. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Terry and I, complete opposites. Complete opposites. And, and, he, and this is the beauty of marriage. You know, the saying, the saying that opposites attract is true. In friendship, it's a different saying. It's birds of a feather flock together. Because in friendship, when you just want a buddy or, or a girlfriend, you know, um, you, it's often around common interests, common goals, common uh, hobbies, those kind of, those birds of a feather flock together. But in a marriage, it's often opposites attract. Because God knows that your weaknesses are her strengths and her strengths are your weaknesses and therefore god brings people who are completely different together to complement one another now notice i didn't say to complete one another i'm complete in christ terry does not make me complete terry is complete in christ i do not make her complete this should be liberating to those of you who are single because you think unless i get married i won't i won't be complete you are complete in christ now, a spouse can complement us. Again, weaknesses and strengths become shared. The strengths compensate for each other's weaknesses. And God brings two very different people together to complement. But you can often see those differences. And this has been a struggle for Terry and me for many, many years where we look at our differences and, and we think competitively instead of complementary. And so they can become sources of irritation and argument until God gets you to the place where you realize you need to not only tolerate your differences, but celebrate your differences because God has brought that person into your life to bring a complementary relationship, you see, then you'll always be fighting and nitpicking over the things that are different. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Listen again, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 3, God would not tell us to make every effort at keeping unity if unity came easily. Unity does not come easily. And so God tells us work at unity. Don't look at the differences and, and, and make them disagreements. Look at the differences as ways that complement each other in the relationship. And so God instituted marriage as a wonderful thing to bring a complementary union between a man and a woman. But there are circumstances where sometimes marriages don't work out. And the Bible gives two very narrow, I'm just going to tell you right up front, that there's not, a, there's not a long list here. There are two narrow circumstances uh, under which divorce is permissible. Now, listen to my language, permissible. God never commands divorce, never once in the Bible. 
He never commands it and never encourages it. But he says there are a couple of reasons why it might be permissible. And for you note takers, here's the first one. When is a divorce permissible? Number one, because of marital unfaithfulness, that is sexual immorality. In Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus said this, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So the word used here for sexual immorality is pornea. It is a broad term that, that covers various forms of illicit sexual behavior. It is the breaking of the covenant to be unfaithful in a marriage by sexual immorality. And it is a grounds, it is permissible. Again, not encouraged, not commanded, but it is a grounds for divorce if there cannot be reconciliation after the breaking of faith with sexual immorality. Number two, the only other reason the Bible gives is in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen to 15, it says, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, if there happens to be, and this is not ideal, a believer marrying an unbeliever, but if that's the case, maybe two unbelievers got married. One person became a Christian in the course of the marriage. What now? Now there's friction, there's some difficulties, there's some differences. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you're free. Again, it's not like you necessarily encourage that. You still, still should fight for the marriage, work on the marriage, do whatever you can to save the marriage. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let him leave or let her leave, you are free. Now, there are a variety of different circumstances. What about this? What about this? What about this? And I'm not going to be able to cover that. In fact, I'm already over time and I still have a third point to make here from the book of Malachi. But, you know, these are the two narrow circumstances where God says divorce is permissible. If you are in a situation where you don't have one of these two grounds, but yet it is completely miserable or maybe even dangerous, you know, a woman should never be in a home where it's abusive. Or maybe there's issues like alcoholism or, or, or pornography or, or stuff that is going on. Separation may certainly be a step that you need to take for your safety or in order to work on the marriage so that hopefully, ultimately, it can be reconciled. Separation is spoken of in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 to 11. It says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. In other words, there might be times where separation is necessary, but separation should always be for the, biblically speaking, should always be with the goal in mind of reconciliation. In our culture today, separation typically is in mind as a step towards divorce. Not, not biblically speaking, it shouldn't be. And people start, well, I'll separate and then I, and then I can start dating around. I can start, that's nonsense. That is, not, that is not in the Bible. If you're separated and still think that gives you liberty to start dating, that is not biblical. 
Uh, you need to still be committed to the marriage and you need to try to do what you can to reconcile. But one of these two grounds may be reason for divorce. It's, it's a very, very difficult topic. I, I'm probably doing a disservice to the topic by just making it one of the points. But yet, I just wanted to lay out for you. Here's what God says. Marriage is sacred. Divorce is never encouraged but permissible under these two circumstances. And if you are in a difficult marriage right now, it might require separation, but the goal should be towards reconciliation and to pray and trust God. Um, If your marriage is not worked out, don't be walking in shame. Some of you would say to me, I didn't even know some of these things and I got divorced. I didn't even know this. Um, or I wasn't even a believer. You know, first of all, if you weren't even a believer, there's a lot of stuff we've done in our life that is under the blood. So, so, you know, don't, don't walk around feeling the shame of that. And all I can say to you is now that you know what you know, wherever you are in a circumstance in life, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're married and on the brink of divorce, whether you're single, just know what God says about the sacredness of marriage and live it out to the best of your ability and trust God. The last point, it's the issue of money. And some of you are like, oh, I'm glad he only has two minutes to go through this. Um, (laughs) If you look quickly at chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. God says to them, will a man rob God? Chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. Some of your translations say, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. Now, before I explain some of these terms, I just want to say this right up front. I am not now, nor have I ever, if you've ever been here at Cornerstone very long, you know, not now, nor ever have I begged for your money or asked for your money. Okay. God can provide for his church and he has graciously provided for our church over the years. And we've never had to beg for money. We've never said, give, give, give. The only reason I point that out is because somebody mentioned to me that somebody on Yelp wrote a review, like all they ever do is ask for money. I'm like, have you ever been to our church? Like we receive an offering as worship unto the Lord, but we never ask you give, 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 give more. We're running short on our budget. And so you need to dig deeper and give more. Never done that. And so God is our provider. So I just want to lay out for you what he says here, and you can pray about it and do as you wish. That becomes between you and the Lord. First, some terms here, tithe. The word tithe there in verse 8 means tenth. Ten cents of every dollar is to go to the Lord. That is his idea for us because it is a way that honors him with everything that we have, which has come from his hand. Everything that we have... We are not owners of it. We are just managers of it because all of it has come from his hand. If you have a biblical worldview of resources and income and earnings, it's that. Everything that I have, everything I've accumulated, everything I've accomplished is from the hand of God. He's either given it to me or given me the abilities to produce an income. It's all from him and he gets all the glory for it. And what he says is now, I want a tenth of it back. And he gives us the privilege of living off of 90% of it. Because it's all from him anyway. Tithes and offerings is the other word used here. Now, offerings are over and above tithe. That's discretionary generosity. 
Okay, but here's the deal. If you believe that you are to manage your money in such a way that God has given you, that you're going to give a tenth to God, now you're having to live off of 90% of your income. And if you believe that offerings should be generosity above that, either, either to the church or to causes or, or charitable organizations or to people that need it or whatever it might be, and let's say just round number, that's also a tenth. Now you've got to live off of 80% of your income. And, and, and good stewards, really, and, and financial advisors say you ought to be saving at least 10% of your income in savings. Now you're having to live off of 70% of your income. And that's hard. It's manageable. It's doable. But you're going to have to make some tough choices. The problem is a lot of people can't be generous with God or others because they are a slave to debt. Most Americans live beyond their means. Most Americans are spending more than they are earning, which means they are accumulating high credit card debt. They're way over their heads. They're deep over their head in water, and they can't be generous if they want to. If you really want to honor God in terms of generosity, the tithe, the offering, and being a blessing to him and to others, it begins with reigning in your spending. Getting into a budget where gets, you get under control and, and you're, you don't have credit card debt and other high absor- uh, 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 debt load that, that cripples you. But the only way we're going to be able to be open-handed instead of tight-fisted is when we are good stewards and managers of everything that God has given us. And we have to learn to tighten our belt and to honor God because he's given us everything. And God says here in this verse, in verse uh, 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 10, he says, try me now in this, or some translations say, test me. He says, go ahead, put me to the test. He even even invites us, put me to the test. He says, I will open up the floodgates of heaven. I will take care of you. If you honor me, I will always make sure that you're taken care of. So much of our spending has to do with, or or hoarding or saving has to do with the feeling like if I don't keep this, then I, I'm, I'm going to be destitute in the future. God will never let his children beg for bread. And we need to always honor him and God will take care of us. There are two quick reasons why, in principle, we should practice the tithe and offering. Number one, because it is an expression of worship to the Lord. It's a regular reminder that God has given us everything. He is the source of everything. He is the owner of all that we earn and we possess. And giving him at least that tenth is a constant reminder that God is the source of all that I have. Number two, it's for the purpose of conditioning the heart against greed and selfishness. It is in the heart of every single one of us to be greedy, to be selfish, to be covetous. By practicing, and at first it might be a discipline before it becomes a natural way of life. By practicing the tithe, giving a tenth unto the Lord of our income, of our resources to the Lord. Through the storehouse, by the way, that's his house, that's his temple, the local church. You can give whatever you want in addition to that, beyond and above to others and whatever. But if we start with that minimum, it's a constant reminder to us. That pushes against the natural tendency to be greedy and selfish until it becomes more of a natural way of life. There's a warning in the Bible in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money, not money itself, the love of it is a root of all kinds of evil. And some eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 8.7. That just as you excel in everything... In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Listen, the grace of giving. 
The tithe is not a legal mandate. It is simply a loving principle. And people will say to me, wait a minute, tithing is just Old Testament stuff. No, it's not. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, meaning the king of righteousness. I think it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Abraham in Genesis 14 tithed to Melchizedek before the law was even given. Jacob also tithed to God in Genesis before the law was given. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 rebukes the Pharisees because they were good about tithing, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He said you should practice the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus actually said tithing is a good thing, but just don't look at it as this legal mandate. Practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness too. And so you do with it what you want. But I'm just here to say that when God speaks to the people in Malachi's day, he's speaking to us as well about ministry, marriage, money. How are we doing in our own lives? Let's pray and ask the Lord. Father, as we close out the book of Malachi here, we just pray that you would help us to see our own lives in regards to our ministry towards you. What is our love and devotion Are we giving you the best of our abilities and talents and resources? Or do we just offer you our leftover time, our leftover devotion? When it comes to marriage, Lord, are we intentional about fighting for our marriages? Perhaps there are some marriages on the the brink of divorce right now. Lord, I just pray that you would bind up the brokenhearted. You would bring healing to those marriages that are fractured right now. I pray that you would bring healing to people who have already gone through divorce, that they would know your grace and your mercy, Lord. Help us. The world is attacking us, Lord. Our marriages are under assault. The enemy hates committed husbands and wives. We need your help, Lord. We need your strength. We need your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your faithfulness. And help us to be good stewards of all that you've given us, Lord. Everything we've earned is from your hand. We want to be faithful to offer to you a portion to remind us that you are the source of all of our provision. And Lord, to help us not to be greedy or selfish. Grow us in these things, Lord. Help us in the same way that you helped the people of Malachi's day. And for your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said.